Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking those things which are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. But as it's written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the mind, the heart of men, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. This morning, as we prepare to study the word of God, we have just a few seconds, as is our custom, to prepare spiritually. And spiritual preparation is always the opportunity for confession of sins. We know that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, the Lord will not hear us. And so we need to resolve the iniquity in our hearts, if there is any there, the sin, by confession of sins. And 1 John 1, nine, the Apostle John has given us this remarkable, simple mechanic of simply confessing our sins. And so this morning, as we begin our second service, our second or continuing study of Patriots Day, we'll take just a few seconds for spiritual preparation. This is also our opportunity for you to, as I like to say, to reciprocate in love to our Lord. In 2 Corinthians 9, 6, and 7, we see that, but this I say, says Paul to the Corinthians, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Therefore, each of you should give just as he has decided in his heart, in his soul, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful or a willing giver. And so what Paul is saying here is that giving is never done out of compulsion. You should never feel pressure in giving. But what you should develop in your years of spiritual growth is an understanding that we are blessed by the Lord and what he has given us is truly his. And we reciprocate in love by giving back to him. And this morning we'll have the offering right after our spiritual preparation. So as the ushers come forward, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we are thankful that you have given us the opportunity not only to assemble in worship, but also have the opportunity to express our love for you in giving. We're thankful, Father, for uh, our, the Word of God that provides us with a firm foundation of understanding our relationship with you. And we're thankful, Father, that we can now express that through giving and also in the study of the Word of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you, Janet. This morning, we are continuing our study, our focus on Patriots Day. And Patriots Day, 2009, may be unfamiliar to most of us. But we have to understand that in the the colonies of the 16, 17, 1800s, there was a strong spiritual foundation upon which this nation was, was grounded. And that is seen, first of all, in uh, the pastors, ministers, those who were considered part of one of the strongest opposition to the, uh, the British government. And on the bottom, I showed this in the first hour, at the bottom of the original Declaration of Independence, the Continental Congress had ordered copies of the Declaration first not to be sent to you know, the town clerk for some sort of recording or for printing or something of that nature, but to the pastors of the local churches who were required to read the same to their respective congregations as soon as divine services is ended. That was hopefully in the afternoon sometime on the first Lord's Day after they had received it. And so there was a strong uh, sense that what was happening politically, what was happening nationally, was either closely tied with what was happening in church or spiritually, or we could say that the human freedom that they had was closely tied to the spiritual freedom that they also had. And so this morning, in our first service, we have started a study of Patriots Day 2009. And for most of us, we might be unfamiliar with Patriots Day. We might not be aware of what that day is. I honestly do not know what's mentioned in school nowadays regarding the shot heard around the world. As a matter of fact, if you mention a shot in school today, you might be expelled for all I know. You may not be able to use that word. I'm not sure that we can actually use you know, the words or draw pictures of guns, in, so, which, uh, uh, frankly, I'd had very little to draw if I was uh, restricted in that, that way today as a child. That was on my mind a lot. But uh, the battles of Lexington and Concord are indelibly printed on the history of the United States. And it was on April 19th in 1775 that these events unfolded. April 19th, 1775 is a day that has been, a set, has been set aside in Massachusetts and Maine to honor the battles that began America's war for independence. And today is the 234th day. Uh, periodically in modern history, the uh, certain events will fall on this day. Uh, the uh, Boston Marathon will very often fall on this day, and they will recognize it. Uh, it also is a day that can be uh, an opening day possibly for baseball and Fenway Park, and it's honored on those days. But the events became known as Patriots Day, and it's observed today by commemorative 
events in Lexington, Concord, and Boston, and probably other cities, but those in particular. And I had the opportunity, as I mentioned in the first hour, when I was stationed in Boston, to observe some of those events. So it was on April 19th, that in 1775, that the shot heard round the world was fired. On April 18th, the order had been given by the British military governor. I think I said, uh, Miss, uh, gave the wrong name in the first hour, but the British military governor of Massachusetts was Major General Thomas Gage. Uh, Gates is another name. I think I used that one in the first hour, but it was Major General Thomas Gage. And he decided to send approximately 700 regulars, as they were called at that time, because the irregulars of the time would have been considered the militia. But 700 regulars to the village of Concord. Of course, they had to pass through Lexington to arrive in Concord, but they were going to confiscate the arms or, excuse me, to confiscate the stores or ammunition and cannon that the colonists had stored there. And there was another part of the order that had been given to General Gage, and that was to arrest Samuel Adams and also John Hancock, who were at the time staying in Lexington. And we saw that they were he, uh, those two were staying with the pastor uh, at that time, Jonas Clark, Pastor Jonas Clark. But to General Gage's credit, and I think his wisdom at that time, he realized that if he arrested John Hancock, excuse me, yeah, John Hancock and Sam Adams, uh, he would cause himself more problems than he cared to, to address because he truly was trying to be considered a, a proper and uh, fair governor of that, of, that uh, of Boston and of Massachusetts. And so in his order to Lieutenant Colonel Smith, he omits the arrest. But it was well known that the British uh, in England uh, wanted the arrest of those individuals. But anyhow, it was on the, uh, the evening of the 18th and the early morning of the 19th that we had the famous rides of Paul Revere and William Dawes, uh, Wentworth Chadwick, a black patriot, uh, Samuel Prescott, and many others who were riding to warn the colonists that either the Redcoats were coming or the regulars were coming. Because as we discussed, more than likely they were not saying the British are coming because at that time the colonists considered themselves British subjects, British citizens. And when we look back on, the, on this conflict, on the, the War of Independence, we realize that the goal of the Sons of, Sons of Liberty and probably most of the citizens, the colonists at that time in America, was not freedom from England. They simply were demanding and seeking their rights, their lawful rights as British citizens. And they felt that they certainly, those rights were being violated. And so that morning, the patriots along the line, from uh, starting from Boston, 
really the area in, in Cambridge, all the way out to Concord were being warned of the regulars who were coming. I mentioned just briefly in the, the first session that of the 700 regulars that were under Lieutenant Colonel Smith's command, most of them were taken from other units. Regimental units in that, uh, at that time in the British uh, system were smaller. They were much smaller. As a matter of fact, they were smaller than maybe some of our battalions today. But they pulled uh, platoons from the grenadiers and from the light infantry. And they had somewhere in the vicinity of 700 regulars that were taking, taken from uh, somewhere in the vicinity of 24 uh, British regular regiments. And as they merged them that morning, they were not that well organized. As a matter of fact, Lieutenant Colonel Smith didn't arrive until late to take command of this unit. And many of the units that were the small units were simply platoons added together into companies. And then those companies were commanded by someone who had previously not been part of that organization. So they were rather disorganized themselves, but they were still uh, a regular unit and they still had reasonable discipline. And so when they arrive in Lexington that morning, they find that not only have the colonists been warned, but there is at least one unit under the command of Captain John Parker who is waiting for them. Uh, what was at issue that morning? What were the thoughts? What was uh, going on that morning? Leading up to that time from 1765 to 1775, of course, had been the on and off, back and forth uh, resistance of the colonists to the taxation that England was trying to place on them. One of the reasons that they were doing that is they felt the colonists should bear a heavy burden for the cost that England had incurred in the French and Indian War. But the colonists, of course, had no say in how those taxes were levied. One of the taxes, of course, that's famous in our history is the Stamp Act. And the Stamp Act uh, meant that just about everything produced in the states as far as any kind of literature, writing, letter, was now going to be uh, taxed by uh, a tax on those documents. And the colonists just absolutely refused to pay those. And so after a while, that tax was repealed. But there were others. One was the tea tax, of course. And the tea tax was placed upon the colonists and the taxes that, and the tea that they brought in to the country, but it was not on the East India Tea Company. And so uh, these caused all kinds of problems, and that, of course, resulted in the, uh, the Boston Tea Party. But what was at issue this morning on April the 19th, 1775? First of all, it was their legal rights as Englishmen under British law. They wanted representation, and they did not have representation. Their rights to defend their lives, their property against the encroachments of government. They wished the liberties that any other uh, law-abiding Englishman might have. So it was their right to defend their lives. What was happening that morning? Well, the British were coming. The regulars were coming to take their capability of defending themselves with uh, ammunition, cannon, and uh, powder that they had. And so, thirdly, 
was their right to possess arms for self-defense, to protect themselves if need be against any threats, although the Indian threat was not as serious at that time, but also against what they saw was the encroachments of a, a tyrannical government. And so that morning, the men who mustered on Lexington Green were in Reverend Clark's congregation, and their leader was Captain John Parker, who happened to be a deacon in the congregation. Throughout most of his years as the pastor there, and I'm going to talk about at least two pastors this morning. One of them, his name is Parker, and the other one is going to be uh, uh, Emerson, I believe. His name eludes me off the top of my head right now. But throughout, yes, William Emerson, throughout most of his years as the pastor, Jonas Clark, Pastor Jonas Clark, taught the Bible. He taught Sunday sermons emphasizing the biblical texts and doctrines. He had midweek services. You remember we said that he had at least four services through uh, each week for the 50 years that he was the pastor there. And his emphasis during those services addressed the issues from the biblical perspective. And the issues that he addressed was law, freedom, tyranny, taxation, and the rights of man. So not only was he teaching the Bible, but he was teaching these others, these other uh, principles from a biblical perspective. And teaching biblical doctrines, as we call them, teaching biblical doctrines in these areas was not something new to Clark nor to his, uh, his, his predecessor, John Hancock, who had been the pastor there, the, we believe the grandfather of John Hancock, who was part of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but also a William Emerson, who was the pastor of the church in Concord. He was the pastor in Concord, and as a matter of fact, we're going to look at one of the messages that he gave on March the 13th in 1775. <clears throat> but they were just a few of the thousands of pastors throughout the colonies that taught biblical principles related to the rights of citizens, freedom, and politics. They came from what sort of a background? They came from a Puritan background and also a background of Calvinism. But the rights that they taught came from the, the, uh, the crucible of the Reformation, and understanding that the Word of God was critically important, not only to their spiritual lives, but also to their human lives. And so they were molded in the Reformation. They, were, they found themselves in the Reformation mold. Now, what was, you know, was their theology always right? No, their theology was not always correct. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that we do have a little difficulty today in determining is sometimes what they were teaching and what they meant. But for the most part, their principles on freedom taken from the Word of God were accurate. One of the hallmarks, one of their ideas, came from the law as it regarded the king. Was the king subject to the law, or was the king over the law? 
And a pastor by the name of Samuel Rutherford had written a text called Lex Rex. And it was foundational for their thinking. Samuel Rutherford's dates were from 1600 to 1616. And his writings influenced the political philosophy of many of the pastors and those who wrote in those days, one of them being John Locke. If we were to do a computer study of the quotations in the writings of the early founders of this nation, we would find that by far and away, it was the Bible that was quoted. Quotations from the Bible was by far and away the most, uh, the most quoted book of, our, of the American founders. The second most quoted individual, because it was an individual, was John Locke. But what most people don't realize, and by the way, he was a very distant second, but that John Locke wrote a lot about the Bible and theology. So early in our uh, foundation, we see that we have a rich spiritual heritage. Now, what did John Parker, Captain John Parker, do at Lexington? Well, first of all, he organized the group that came uh, as they were warned by Paul Revere, Dawes, Prescott, and others. And they met at the church. They met at uh, Pastor John Clark's church. And after meeting there, they, matter of fact, they met very early in the morning, sometime probably between three and four in the morning. And then after that, in waiting for the, uh, the regulars to arrive, they more or less loosely were in the town. When the regulars began to arrive, they moved out onto the green and Captain John Parker told them, stand your ground, don't fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. Uh, Pastor Jonas Clark later on would uh, provide a testimony, because, and by the way, there, were, there was much testimony, legal statements, depositions taken on what happened that morning, because while we might think that they were uh, a rather primitive group, they were not. And they immediately uh, began to take depositions as to what happened. And what's interesting is that a dispatch left Boston prior to the uh, report from General Gage. General Gage sent a report back to England, but the colonists, knowing full well that uh, they would not get a, uh, a fair hearing in, the, uh, uh, in, in England, decided to send their dispatch first. And they had a, a faster ship. And they actually were able to send the dispatches back to Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin before uh, the British got theirs back there. So it was interesting that they took these depositions. But Jonas Clark said, immediately upon their appearing so suddenly and so nigh, Captain Parker, who commanded the militia company, ordered the men to disperse and take care of themselves and not to fire. And this was his, his testimony, that when they saw that the regulars were uh, forming up and they realized there was going to be trouble, we have other testimony that says that there was one platoon that fired first and there were no casualties from that. There was speculation that they may have fired in the air or uh, they fired just powder, but it's hard to believe they would have fired just a powder round. But anyhow, they fired uh, once, and as the uh, militia were 
dispersing, there was a second volley in which uh, eight were killed and many others were wounded. But he said, uh, Jonas Clark, Pastor Jonas Clark, told, uh, testifies that they were told to disperse and not to fire. Upon this, our men dispersed, but many of them not so speedily as they might have done, not having the most distant idea of such brutal barbarity and more than savage cruelty from the troops of the British king as they immediately experienced. And so it was Pastor Clark who said that he believed that, you know, and I think I told you in the first session, one of the reasons they probably didn't disperse as fast as they could is that Captain Clark or Captain Parker was suffering from tuberculosis and his voice was probably weak. But anyhow, there is, I think, testimony to believe that the first shots there were fired by the regulars. They marched on to Concord, and it was in Concord that we began to see some of the early encounters between the militia and, uh, and, and their, the regulars. And so it was there in Lexington and Concord that the American War of Independence began. And we live now in a secular society, and it's hard for us to maybe sometimes understand the impact of the Bible on their lives. But their education at those times, uh, at that time, was in the Word of God. And they spent hours reading and studying the Word of God. And so they had a knowledge of the Word of God, and they also knew that their history was founded on the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a history of, uh, of a Christian heritage. So let me show you a couple pictures. Uh, we went through... A, uh, some other slides, but these are some slides that were sent to me by a friend. This is one of the monuments up in Lexington Green. The monument, and there's a... It's on the screen right here for you. Uh, there is a, a plaque, a huge plaque on Lexington Green. I remember standing and reading it. Sometimes a little difficult to read the old English, but... Uh, the monument, it says, is erected by the inhabitants of Lexington under the patronage and at the expense of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts to the memory of their fellow citizens, Ensign Robert Monroe, Monroe, Jonas Parker, who was the cousin of Captain John Parker, Samuel Hadley, Jonathan Harrington, Jr., Isaac Maisie, Caleb Harrington, John Brown of Lexington, and Asa, Asa Porter of Woburn, who fell on this field, the first victims to the sword of British tyranny and opposition. Another slide here shows the church. Uh, this is, oh, let's go back there. This is one of the memorials here as well on Lexington Green. This church is the church that was pastored by, first of all, Reverend John Hancock, and then for 50 years by Reverend Jonas Parker, or Jonas Clark. Here we see uh, the portrayal of uh, Lexington Green when the British arrived. This was a sermon that was uh, preached by Jonas Clark uh, a year later, April 19, 1776. This is one of the houses in which the, uh, uh, the British searched while they were there. This is that uh, memorial that I was showing you that Captain Parker 
is supposed to have said, stand your ground. Don't fire unless fired upon, but if they mean to have a war, let it begin here. This is one of the reenactments on Lexington Green. This is out in Concord. Uh, again, this is the Jonas, this is uh, Lexington Green. This is also Lexington Green as well. Uh, two more pictures. This happens to be one of the pictures of the Minutemen who arrived. And that's it for that, that group of, of pictures. There's, there's more I want to do here, so I'm going to try to hurry along. <clears throat> okay. Now, speaking of the ministers... What were the pastors teaching? What were the pastors teaching at that time? What was what was in their message? Well, no minister studied the rapidly unfolding events against scriptural teaching more closely than did the pastor in Concord or Concord. He was a 32 year old minister, William Emerson. He was the grandfather of Ralph Waldo Emerson. And for a long time, his world, again, like many other pastors, had been dominated by local concerns. The local concerns and preaching salvation. But all of that was going to change in March and April of 1775 when all of the members of his congregation were propelled into what he termed the greatest events taking place in this present age. And so here we have a pastor who begins to focus on this. By March, Emerson and other Concord pastors or patriots knew the British spies had infiltrated their area and they knew that their arms and armaments were being secured there in Concord. And they knew that it was only probably a matter of time before the regulars came to try to seize it. Many believed Gage was planning a preemptive strike on those supplies. And on March 13th, there was a muster of the Concord militia. And it was at that uh, muster that Emerson preached a sermon. He was given the opportunity to preach a sermon, and he preached a sermon on 2 Chronicles 13.12. 2 Chronicles 13.12. And part of that text says, And behold, God himself is with us, for our captain. And what he was going to say that morning is that God is on the side of liberty. <clears throat> and so he was preaching a sermon. Never would he deliver a sermon that was probably more momentous. He had it within his means to promote or discourage almost certainly the call to arms, because that's what was occurring. But what was he to say? What was God's will for the American people? And this had to be on his mind that morning. Well, he begins his sermon with a rather somber note that he knew that the British had the intelligence to approach. And with that was an approaching storm of war and bloodshed. He said that many in attendance would soon be called upon for real service. Were they ready? He said that real readiness 
depending upon, dependent upon not only on military skill and weaponry, but also on moral and spiritual resolve. To be successful, he said the soldiers must believe in what they were fighting for, and they must trust in God, in God's power to uphold them. Otherwise, he said, they would scatter in fear before the superior British redcoats. He asked them, why were they there that morning? And for what were they fighting? He told them that they were there not simply fighting for those events that circled that day, but they were there fighting for their liberties. They were there standing by their liberties and trusting only in God. The American, and by doing so, the American people were fighting also the, the British who were trying to take their freedom from them. He said, for my own part, the more I reflect upon the movements of the British nation, the more I'm satisfied that our military preparation here for our defenses is justified in the eyes of the impartial world. He said, nay, for should we neglect to defend ourselves by military preparation, we could never answer it to God and to our own conscience and the rising generations. And so Emerson knew the road ahead was going to be difficult. But he said, in the end, excuse me, accordingly, he said that in the end, the Lord would cover your head in the day of battle and carry you on from victory to victory. And he concluded by saying that the whole world would know that there is a God, that there is a God in America. Now, Let's pause here for just a moment to look at a passage of Scripture. We're going once more to 1 Samuel. We're going to 1 Samuel 8. And when we talk this morning about liberty and about freedom, there is no greater passage of Scripture in the Bible than 1 Samuel 8 with reference to what we might call a political statement by the Bible. Because... In 1 Samuel 8, we have a nation, Israel, that has the most freedom of any nation in the world. They didn't have a political ruler. What did they have? What did they have? They had God as their king. God was their king. They were in a theocracy, a rulership by God, who provided guidance to them through priests and also prophets. But the tribes were, even though they uh, functioned collectively together, they were reasonably autonomous and there was great freedom. And so the Bible teaches this freedom. And there came a time, though, when Israel lost their way spiritually. And this happens, of course, on and off. We see it in Judges for certain. And as we begin the book of 1 Samuel, and those of you who are studying 1 Samuel with me, realize that we start the book of 1 Samuel in probably the darkest days of Israel. We have a priest who is maybe well-meaning, but very corrupt, and the Lord will take him out. And it's under his uh, judgeship while he is the prophet and while he is the priest, that we lose the ark. The ark of the covenant is lost to Israel. 
but it's regained because of Samuel's spiritual faithfulness. But as Samuel gets older, the nation once more drifts spiritually. And we see at the beginning of 1 Samuel 8 that the elders, and there's some irony in the term elders here, as we will see, it's the word in the Old Testament that simply means old ones. So in verse 1 of chapter 8, we see that the old ones, the elders, and now to be an elder in Israel doesn't mean you had to be old, but these were the leaders, those who were more mature, those who were seen as being able to fill uh, positions of responsibility. And it says in verse 1 of chapter 8, And it came to pass when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first one was Joel, and the, same of the, and the name of the second was Abijah. And these are two names. One, uh, both of them actually, uh, have the, the, the idea that uh, there was a spiritual uh, expectation for these two sons. One means, Joel means, the Lord is God, and Avi, which is the word for father, my father, and then the word God, so or the word Lord, my father is Lord. And they were judges in Beersheba, and we've seen Beersheba was the, uh, the well of the oath. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. And so here we see that Samuel, even though he was a righteous judge, his sons were not. Verse 4, Then all the elders, all the old ones of Israel, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. They came to Samuel. Why? Because they knew that they would not be able to either, number one, elect or appoint a judge themselves. Samuel was the source for this king. Why? Because he was their contact with the Lord. So they realized that Samuel was their source of spiritual and political freedom, but they didn't trust him for their leadership. Verse 6, we need to move on because really our text tells us what the Lord and what the biblical principle is for uh, big government, government control. Verse 6, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said to him, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. This is, this is always amazing to me. The people came to Samuel and said, give us a king. Was a king what the Lord wanted? No. They're demanding a king of, Saul, of, of uh, Samuel. He's old. They think they can intimidate him and take advantage of him. And I would have thought that when Samuel says, I don't like this idea, but stay right here. Stand at ease. Rest easy on your oars. I'm going to go talk to the Lord. I would have thought that they would have begun to come around with that type of understanding. 
that Samuel has contact with the Lord. He can go right now and talk to the Lord about their demands. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. See, Samuel was probably a bit sensitive to this demand. We don't want you as a judge. We don't want you as a prophet. Well, maybe you can continue as a prophet, but you're no longer going to judge us. We want a king. You're old. You're washed up, Samuel. And Samuel didn't like the sound of this. He knew that it wasn't what the Lord wanted because the Lord's timing is perfect. The Lord would provide them a king when it was time. But he goes to the Lord and he makes the request. And he is probably more stunned than the people are going to be when the Lord says, okay, we'll give him a king. He said, oh, by the way, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. Who are they rejecting? They're rejecting me. And how are they rejecting him? For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. And that's simply our verb form of the word king, Melech. See, they have a king. The Lord is their king. And they're rejecting him from rulership, from being their king. Eight, according to all the worship they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods. They reject the Lord as God. They reject him as king. And now they want their own king. They're moving into this human viewpoint uh, position that they want the human realm king, not the divine realm. Verse 9, Now therefore heed their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And so we really are indebted to these elders. We're indebted to the spiritual decadency right now of Israel because we are now given insight into what God thinks of big government. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord. This is in verse 10. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king. And he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own, and appoint them from his own, for his own chariots, and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. You see, in order to have a king, in order to, I guess you could say, do it right, it's going to take a large uh, accumulation of manpower to do this. And where will they come from? Where do we find these people? Well, they're going to be your sons, elders standing in front of us. They are going to be not just in a volunteer force, which we have today. They're going to be impressed into service, the service of the king, this king who are you, who, whom you are demanding. So at, at least, here goes one of the sons. We might call him number one son is now gone. Verse 12, he will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. Now, we don't see this immediately with Saul, but it builds until we come to a time 
when at the end of Solomon's reign, when the nation as a whole is under extreme taxation and under extreme pressure uh, in supporting the government. So much so that there's a revolt against the son of Solomon, Rehoboam. There is a revolt and the, the nation splits at that time. And what is it over? One of the reasons, one of the significant reasons is the heavy taxation. So we see that he's not only going to take some to fill the forces, but he needs to build units and he'll have to appoint captains. And then beyond that, he's going to, he will need some to plow the ground, take care of his property. Verse 13. So what we have probably in two, if you've got one son serving in the military, you might have another son who's impressed into service to take care of the property of the king and those who work for him. 13. He will take your daughters. Here's a daughter departing the house. So you're going to lose your sons, you're going to lose your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Verse 14. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. What happens here is the king is now going to need uh, land for those who work for him. Not Not only for himself, but for those who work for him. And where is he going to get this? He's going to take it. This is taking the property of individual Jews, individual Israelis, so that he now can build his government. And this is the confiscation of property. 15. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. So here we have oppressive taxation. And this is only 10%. The Lord was saying 10% is going to occur at this point. Of course, it will swell to much greater than that. And we certainly have much greater than that today for those who, uh, who are able to, uh, to make a living. Verse 16. And he will make your male servants, and he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men, and your donkeys, and put them to work. So you might have said, well, taken some property. But no, he's taking from them also their animals, everything that they have. We see that losing servants, losing property, losing animals. 17, he will take a tenth of your sheep, and you will be his servants. Here we are. The Lord saying to the populace of Israel, you will be servants to the government. You have freedom now. He says you will be servants. They have freedom now. They are servants to the Lord, but they have uh, the most freedom that they possibly can have under the rulership of our Lord. And why do they need a king? They think to protect them. The Lord has always protected them. Verse 17, he'll take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Why? Because this is your warning. It's the story of a word to the wise. This is your warning. Verse 19, Samuel now has heard what the Lord wants him to tell the people. And the people are to be warned against big government, against a government that sees it needs to accumulate a lot of uh, people, 
possessions, and power to rule. Samuel tells them this, verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us. We will voluntarily give up our freedom. That's what's happening. No, but we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations. This is absolutely 100 degrees out from what they were to be. They were not to be like all the other nations. They were to be separate, set aside. A nation that had a peculiar and particular ministry to the Lord. They were not to be like all the other nations. But they wanted to be like all the other nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. We want the king to judge us. Well, that's going to change rather rapidly when Saul becomes king. Not only that, but it doesn't, it's not far from this chapter as we move forward that we see that in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 17, that the nation is threatened by the Philistines. And who is not going out in front of them to fight their battles? Their king. While Goliath challenged them, Saul sits in his tent. Verse 21 of 1 Samuel 8. Verse 21 says, And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So he hears the people, he goes to the Lord. The Lord tells him what to tell the people, he tells the people. The people refuse the warning of the Lord. These are the words. These are the words of the Lord. And again, for me, it's, it's always astonishing that someone can stand in front of them and say, these are the words of the Lord. It's evident that this is not a decision that pleases the Lord. And they stood there and said, no. So in the face of absolute truth, they reject. And today in the face of absolute truth, of the truth of what is happening to us and the nation, we simply reject that. Why? Because in many, in the mind of many, security comes before freedom and liberty. And someone else can make decisions for us that we, for some reason, can't make for ourselves. So, we let the government make decisions for us. We decide that they can make better decisions than we can make. And who is to say that they can? Who are they? They prove on a daily basis that they have a... Uh, they understand less freedom than we do. And so Samuel heard all the words of the Lord, of the people, and he repeated them in the hearing of the Lord. So the Lord said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel... In 1 Samuel 8, said to the men of Israel, Every man go to his city. And actually what he says there is, To your homes, go. He's disgusted with them. He simply says, Depart. Well, we have one more 
passage that I would like to read to you. And this happened on March the 23rd, 1775. And I'd like to finish this morning with this, with this quotation. On March 23rd, 1775, we hear from Patrick Henry. And it's Patrick Henry's thoughts on liberty or death. And it's something I think we need to review periodically. It's from our history and it's important. It was before the Virginia Convention in one of the most moving speeches in American history. It was Patrick Henry. What was he doing? He was trying to prod the colonists towards independence by appealing to their indignation and their passion for liberty. But what we see here is that he also bases it on his belief in God. He says, Sir, if we have done everything that could be done to avert the storm which is now coming on. It says, Sir, we have done everything to avert the storm which is now coming on. We have petitioned. We have remonstrated. We have supplicated. We have prostrated ourselves before the throne and have implored its interposition to arrest the tyrannical hands of the ministry of the ministry in Parliament. Our petitions have been slighted. Our petitions... Our petitions have been slighted and our remonstrances have produced additional violence and insult. Our supplications have been disregarded and we have been spurned with contempt from the foot of the throne. In vain, after these things, we may indulge the fond hope of peace and reconciliation. There is no longer any room for hope. If we wish to be free, if we mean to preserve inviolate those inestimable privileges for which we have been so long contending, if we mean not basely to abandon the noble struggle in which we have been so long engaged and which we have pledged ourselves never to abandon until the glorious object of our contest shall be obtained, then we must fight. I repeat, we must fight. An appeal to arms and to the God of hosts is all that is left to us. They tell us, that we are weak, unable to cope with so formidable an adversary. But when shall we be stronger? Will it be next week or next year? Will it be when we are totally disarmed and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? Shall we gather strength by irresolution and inaction? Shall we, shall we acquire the means of effectual resistance by lying on our backs and hugging the delusive phantom of hope until our enemies shall have bound us hand and foot. Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of those means which the God of nature has placed in our power. Three million people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations who will raise up friends to fight our battles for us. The battle, sir, is not to the strong alone. It's to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. Besides, we have no choice. If we were base enough to desire it, it is now too late to retire from the contest. There is no retreat but in submission and slavery. Our chains are forged. Their clanking may be heard on the plains of Boston. The war is inevitable. And let it come. I repeat, sir, let it come. It is in vain 
sir, to extenuate the matter. Gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And of course, that is a quote from Isaiah. The war has actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that gentlemen wish? What would they have? Is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not, course, what others may take. But as for me, give me liberty or give me death. And so this morning, as we remember Patriots Day and our history, we must remember that our freedom in this nation was founded upon our Christian heritage, upon our spiritual beliefs. And it's from the Word of God that we will continue to base that freedom. And so this morning, this has not been meant to be a political message, but it's meant to be an understanding of what we have before us in the Word of God. We have from our Lord been given freedom, not only spiritual freedom, but natural and political freedom as well. And unless we understand that, and unless we give it up ourselves, then it will be lost. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the Word of God, which again is alive and powerful. And we're thankful for this passage in 1 Samuel 8 that talks to us about surrendering our freedom to government. How, how clear could it be? We're thankful, Father, that you are the God of freedom and that you have provided us not only spiritual freedom but human freedom so that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, one last thought this morning, and this is for anyone who might be here this morning who is an unbeliever, who has no eternal relationship with you and has no hope for, the eternity, for eternity. We pray, Father, that they might know that their eternal future is as simple for them as believing on the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And if you're here this morning and you have no eternal destiny and you know not the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then this is your opportunity. It is either eternal, eternal, uh, eternity in heaven with our Lord or eternity in the lake of fire. It doesn't seem like that's a difficult choice. But we know that we have made choices uh, similar to that in the past when the Lord speaks. Father, we pray this morning that anyone who might be here who's not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ will realize in an instant of time they can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and that there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so this is your opportunity. Heavenly Father, we pray that the message this morning will be taken in the spirit in which it was given and that is that you provide us spiritual and human freedom and we must recognize both. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.